Well, we have been in Acts chapter 8 some weeks. We had a break for Easter and other things. But in this sermon, going back to Acts 8, you may recall the previous sermons, I asked some questions about the text and raised some answers. And I have one more question to ask of what was going on in Acts chapter 8 to share with you this morning. And the question is this. To receive the Holy Spirit, what must a Christian do? Maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you've wondered, did I do what needed to be done to have the Holy Spirit come to indwell me and to baptize me into Christ? Well, simply put, biblically, the person who would have the Holy Spirit received is the person who would simply trust Christ alone for salvation. The Holy Spirit, the scriptures teach, is received at the point of conversion when we become aware of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and we trust him and only him to make us right with God and to make us useful in God's work, fit for heaven, then we are given and we receive the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 read, For by one Spirit, that's a capital S, the Holy Spirit, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. All is an important word there. Some Christians are not baptized in the Spirit and other Christians are not. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all, watch it, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Again, capital S, Holy Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. This verse is teaching that we all, without exception, 100% of born-again believers have been made to drink of the Holy Spirit. We didn't have to ask for that. We didn't have to pray for that. We didn't have to do anything except trust Christ to be our Savior. And immediately and automatically and invisibly, we receive the Holy Spirit. We were made to drink of one Spirit with a capital S. And so... After the book of Acts, the action of the book of Acts, we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament a case where it took the touch of an apostle or anything subsequent to salvation for a believer to receive the Holy Spirit. And so if we go back to the verses that we didn't expand upon in previous sermons, Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, something happened in the context of the birth of the church, in the infancy of the church, the toddler years of the church. Something happened that we need to understand in light of the verse, as I've just read, that said to receive the Holy Spirit is automatic at the point of conversion. So what do we see in Acts 8, 14 to 17? I'll read it. In the context of Simon the sorcerer, remember him? Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, may I pause, before that, Samaria had not heard the word of God. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen on any of them, and they had been baptized They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So in this apostolic account, when the Bible was not yet complete, the gospel was expanding like a rock thrown into a calm water, splash point. The gospel first came to Jerusalem. Then it went to Judea and Samaria. And then it went to the uttermost parts of the earth. And at every scene between the splashes, between Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, there were tongues, miracles, givings of the Holy Spirit. 
between Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, according to the account in the book of Acts, again, sign wonders to authenticate, to validate the message that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, etc. And so as word came to the believers in Jerusalem that certain Samaritans had believed on Jesus for their salvation and they were trusting the gospel by which the people in Jerusalem were also saved and that salvation was coming to Samaria, God ordained that it needed some validation. It needed some confirmation by workings of the Holy Spirit. I personally think, although the text doesn't say so, so I can't be emphatic, but I personally think, based on the pattern of the book of Acts, that those freshly indwelt Holy Spirit Samaritan believing Christians probably spoke in tongues at that juncture in the church's history. For you'll remember, the first giving of the Holy Spirit is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that that's exactly how it went. For when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit, Holy Spirit, gave them utterance. At this point, I want to make a distinction biblically between a filling by the Holy Spirit and a receiving of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not the same as receiving the Holy Spirit. They're different things. So what is Holy Spirit filling? Well, for one thing, it's repeated because you could say we spring leaks. We need constantly to be filled by the, by the Holy Spirit. And according to Ephesians 5.18, that filling looks like controlling. When you and I are filled by the Holy Spirit, we are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. In case you wonder about that, Ephesians 5.18 teaches, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. I looked up the meaning of that Greek word. It's asotia. It means unsavedness. <laughs> Interesting. And do not be drunk with wine, which is unsavedness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is the corollary, what is the correlation, rather, between being filled with the Holy Spirit and a drunk? What's the point of comparison? Well, a drunk is controlled by the alcohol. And a a spirit-filled Christian, but be filled with the Spirit, a spirit-filled Christian is controlled by the Holy Spirit in what we say and don't say. Filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit in what we think and refuse to think. Filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit in what we do and we will not do. And so Holy Spirit filling is repeated. We have to be filled time and time and time and time again until we see Christ through the rapture of the church or physical death. Holy Spirit filling is repeated. It's a moment-to-moment -moment proposition. I could be preaching right now and be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, and I trust that I am, and in a flash, even while I'm preaching, I could be in my flesh, looking for credit, having a proud attitude. So we have to be filled by the Spirit moment to moment and repeatedly. And what's that issue by being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit? Control 
and fruit. You will not and I will not see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the branches of our lives except we're filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Flesh will not produce the fruit of the Spirit. They're in opposition to each other. So a filling of the Spirit is repeated. It's moment to moment. It's comparable to like a drunk with alcohol, the Holy Spirit controlling us. It's an issue of control and fruit. Well, then what is receiving of the Holy Spirit? Receiving of the Holy Spirit is not repeated. It's a one-time thing. To receive the Holy Spirit is at the moment of salvation. You were made to drink of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 said. Let's read it again. For by one Spirit, capital S, we were all, I'd underline all, baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all, I'd underline all again, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, into one spirit. So receiving of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event at the moment of salvation, and what's at issue in the receiving of the Holy Spirit is life because we are dead in trespasses and sins, right? So when we trust Christ to be our Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit immediately, invisibly, and he gives spiritual life to where there was spiritual death. The other thing that's issue in the receiving of the Holy Spirit is power. We didn't have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness until we were saved and given the Holy Spirit to give us the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. And so again, they're not the same. Filling is to do with control and fruit. Receiving is to do with life and power. We receive the Holy Spirit. We get the life and the power before we ever can be filled by the Holy Spirit, which has to do with control and fruit. And so the receiving of the Holy Spirit, also known as being baptized by the Holy Spirit, by the way, baptized or the Greek baptizo, all it means is to place into in a sense, I'm baptizing my hand when I put it into my suit coat. There are two kinds of baptism in the New Testament. There's Holy Spirit baptism, when the Spirit of God places the believer in Christ into Christ and into the family of God. So Holy Spirit baptism is first. Water baptism announces that a spirit baptism has already taken place. When our firstborn Joanna was adopted, we put an ad in the newspaper announcing her name and her birth weight and that we were adopting her to be our daughter, that birth announcement didn't cause Joanna to be born. It announced that she'd already been born. And so receiving of the Holy Spirit or being spirit baptized is not an experience to seek. It's a reality to acknowledge. We have seven persons now who are asked for water baptism on June the 26th, it's great. Maybe there's someone in the sound of my voice that's not yet been water baptized since conversion. Speak to me. There's still time for me to help you to get ready to be water baptized on June the 26th. It is not a suggestion for a disciple of Christ. It is a command for a disciple of Christ. Now, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 say that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. 
If you picture yourself being born again and God the Father puts you into an envelope addressed to himself in heaven and then he mails you to heaven and when you go to heaven you make it as registered piece of mail and God the Father is the only one who can receive you in that envelope that was mailed. The seal on the envelope with you in the envelope as a believer is the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also trusted after you'd heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have believed, you were sealed, here it is, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the glory of God. So what this is saying is that when you trusted Christ to be your savior and God, as it were, puts you in this envelope, the self-addressed envelope to heaven, he sealed you safe in that envelope by the Holy Spirit. So my question is, if the sealing of the Holy Spirit follows conversion by any length of time, how can it be logically that the Spirit of God is the seal of our salvation if he is not received at the moment of salvation? You'd be unsealed for a while. Some people would say you could crawl out of the envelope. We know the scriptures don't teach that. And so currently, to receive the Holy Spirit, a person trusts Christ alone for his or her salvation, and at that very moment of conversion, the believer receives the Holy Spirit. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, is made to drink. Doesn't have to beg. Doesn't have to go through any spiritual hoops. Is made to drink of the Spirit. There's no delay. It's immediate. There's no need for a special request. It's automatic. And so again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, listen carefully. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, watch it, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, capital S. And so in closing this sermon, it's a long closure, I'll admit. In closing this sermon, I want to raise six questions about the Holy Spirit and about his ministry that I think I need to raise the questions and give you Bible answers because I think there's some misconceptions. I know there are around us and maybe in us. I don't know. You may want to get something to write with right now because I'm not going to read every scripture reference that I mention. And if you want to do a self-study on this, you may want to get something to write with, a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper. Failing that, you can view this sermon online at our website later if you wish. So the first question I want to raise is, what about being slain in the Spirit? What about being slain in the Spirit? Well, the first thing I'd like to answer that with is that the Holy Spirit's fruit, it's one thing, it's fruit with nine dimensions. It's like a beautiful uh, pineapple and when you turn the pineapple and rotate it, there's nine faces to the one fruit. The Spirit of God produces fruit singular in you and me. And when you turn it around, biblically, you see nine different aspects of that fruit. And one of the aspects of the nine of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right? Self-control. Would having involuntary seizures or fainting 
or going into a trance or having frenzied behavior or falling backwards, are those manifestations of self-control? No, they aren't. Quite the contrary. They are actually manifestations of being out of control. On a side note, nowhere in the Bible do we see a person falling backward before God. Nowhere. Every time a person, Old or New Testament, fell before God, they fell on their faces, prostrate. That's the posture of reverence. I've got some verses. Genesis 17.3, Numbers 26, Ezekiel 128, Luke 5, 12 to 13. So that's an answer about what about being slain in the spirit. Second question, isn't a person closer to God when being slain in the spirit? Biblically, I would answer no. Being out of control diminishes connection awareness with God. Would you not agree? The great commandment of Matthew 22 includes the commandment to love God with all of one's mind. And so if I am being slain in the spirit, sometimes the mind is not engaged, I would submit to you. Third question. What about speaking in tongues? Isn't that a sign of Holy Spirit baptism? If it is, if speaking in tongues is a sign of Holy Spirit baptism, may I ask a question? Why are not tongues not mentioned at all after 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30 in the New Testament? There's teachings about being baptized by the Holy Spirit after that verse, but no reference to tongues. Why would that be? And second question, if speaking in tongues is a sign of the Holy Spirit baptism, then why is Holy Spirit baptism not associated with tongues explicitly in Romans 6, 1 to 14, which is a central New Testament passage on Holy Spirit baptism? Romans 6, 1 to 14 is a central text in the New Testament on Holy Spirit baptism, but it makes no mention of tongues. Why is that? And why does Paul state in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, that not all believers spoke in tongues in the New Testament times? All believers were Holy Spirit baptized, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, they all didn't speak in tongues. So how, how does that work? Question four, how should we view the fact that some believers, it is said, can be taught to speak in tongues? Well, I begin by answering that nowhere in the New Testament do we see a believer having to be taught to speak in tongues. In the New Testament, tongues speaking was not a skill. It was a bestowal, a gift. Tongues in the New Testament, when they were operative, wasn't something to study. It was something to receive from the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you think about it, if tongues can be taught, then who actually winds up giving tongues to a person? The Holy Spirit 
or a human teacher. And logically, if it is believed that the believer isn't spirit baptized or spiritual enough, if that believer cannot speak in tongues, then there is pressure both to learn how to speak in tongues and to teach someone else to speak in tongues. Sometimes God knows the heart. Sometimes could it be that the demand to speak in tongues reduces to drama? Could it be God is the judge? I am not. That sometimes pressure leads to performance. I just raised the questions. Question five. What about the ability to speak in tongues being proof of Holy Spirit baptism? Since 1 Corinthians 12.30 teaches that not all believers spoke in tongues in the New Testament times, then we have to ask, what does the scripture say are proofs that a person has been spirit baptized? Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'll give you three things that I can look to in the New Testament that were evidences of Holy Spirit baptism, okay? One was the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about that. Galatians 5, to 23, nine aspects of one fruit. When you have the fruit of the Spirit evident in your speech, your thoughts, and your actions, you are evidencing that you've been Holy Spirit baptized. Second thing, newness of life. It says in Romans 6, 4, that we've been baptized into Christ, into his death and into his resurrection, that we have newness of life. So when I baptize on June the 26th, after public confessions of faith by those I will baptize, I name them and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Watch now. Buried with him through baptism into death raised to walk in newness of life. There's no hope of anybody water baptized walking in newness of life except they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We can't live the Christian life without the Spirit of God controlling us, filling us. We can't. Question six. Oh, one more. After fruit as an evidence of being Holy Spirit baptized and newness of life, I almost forgot the third one, the third one is a growing gratitude to God. According to Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, I'll let you look it up. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, one of the evidences of being spirit baptized and filled is to have a growing gratitude to God. Is that you? Sometimes you ask a believer, how are you? Pretty good under the circumstances. What are you doing under them? <laughs> you can have a growing attitude of gratitude as you are spirit baptized and as the spirit of God controls your mind, controls your emotions. Sixth question, are exciting supernatural experiences important to seek? Are exciting supernatural experiences important to seek? Well, the Apostle Peter was one of the privileged ones who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember? He was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. 
And God the Father bestowed approval upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the bright light of that and the garments of Jesus, much more white than any launderer could make them white. So Peter was right on the mountain. Peter saw that mountaintop, supernatural, exciting experience of the transfiguration of Christ. But what did he write in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21? He wrote this. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. May I interject? Yeah. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they were eyewitnesses to Christ's majesty. I go on. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is what the Father said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So you can just imagine Peter's writing about some, a memory, an experience he had with Christ and two other apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you would just think that that would be the greatest thing that happened in his life. Did he hang his hat on being spirit-filled and controlled and baptized by that event? you just think that, wouldn't you? But he goes on to say, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, listen, knowing this first, that no prophecy of God is of a private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He said, Scripture, (laughs) Scripture, which of, he was one of 40 authors the Holy Spirit moved to write Scripture. Peter said, Scripture is more important an experience than the Mount of Transfiguration. That's how valuable the Bible is. You hold a precious treasure in your lap and in your heart as you've memorized it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you want to talk about exhilarating spiritual experience. He says, I, I was there, it was, it was wonderful, but scripture and the interpretation of scripture is even more dear to me. So there with a front row seat to the amazing, exciting transfiguration miracle, he wrote that scripture is more sure of a prophetic word than that mountaintop experience which he had. God is not against mountaintop experiences. He can, in his providential plan and sovereign grace, he can give us mountaintop spiritual experiences. The danger becomes when we clamor after them as being more important than the Bible. There's a serious danger when anyone raises our subjective experiences to the level of the object of truth of Scripture. Because when that happens, when we raise our experiences to have the same authority as God's Word, the Bible, then we will see ourselves eventually drifting from God's truth for our experience. We cannot let our experiences be the foundation of our faith. We must have Christ as the foundation of our faith built on his word that centers in Christ. Feelings come and go. 
but God's word abides forever. 1 Peter 1.25 for you to look up. So when we are experientially adrift from the plumb line of God's word, we expose ourselves to possibly severe doctrinal error and even we could subject ourselves to demonic oppression, not possession. A true born-again believer cannot be demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit always possesses the believer. But we can be Holy Spirit harassed. Excuse me. Demonically harassed. Demonically harassed. Oppressed. Do you know that there is a church in California, Bethel Church, Many churches all across the world are singing their music. I'm going to share something with you, and you tell me, should we be singing Bethel Church's music? There's a church in Redding, California, Bethel Church, that's pastored by Bill Johnson, and it practices something they call grave sucking or grave soaking. What is grave sucking and what is grave soaking? Let me tell you. That's when someone from this Bethel church will lie across a physical grave of a deceased preacher or evangelist for the purpose of pulling out the power of the Holy Spirit, a power which they believe was trapped within the body upon the person's death. They believe this is a helpful way of anointing for the living Christian and a reversal in their terminology of the wasted Holy Spirit that was buried in the grave with the preacher or the evangelist. So they teach. Bethel Church. They go to grave sites. Somebody lies in the grave to suck the Holy Spirit out of the deceased preacher or evangelist's body. When you raise experiences to the same level of Scripture, you can come into very serious error. When I read that and I researched it, I went to Bethel Church's website. You can do that, Bethel Church, Redding, California. When you go to Bethel Church's website, you'll also see, interestingly, that they have a healing school. They will teach people how to heal. Also, they teach and equip their people to be prophetic. It's not that they believe God gives the gift of prophecy, but they'll teach you how to be a prophet. And they also teach dream interpretation. You see, it's experience. Who wouldn't want to heal? Who wouldn't want to be a prophet? Who wouldn't want to interpret dreams for other people? Experience. Bethel Church. Experience par with scripture. There's another example that I'm more acquainted with in my home city of Toronto. Back in the 90s, in the Vineyard Church in Toronto, something happened called the Toronto Blessing. The Toronto Blessing is another example of the problems that are created by biblically unsupported spiritual experiences. As I said, the Toronto Blessing began in January of 1994, and the Toronto Blessing gained so much international uh, notoriety that one magazine judged it to be a bigger tourist attraction than, than Niagara Falls. 
People were coming from all over the world to the Toronto Vineyard Airport Church to see this Toronto blessing of the Holy Spirit. Among the other spectacles which were claimed to be proof that God the Holy Spirit was mightily moving in their midst in revival was holy laughter. Persons in the meetings would break out in hilarious and uncontrollable and unexplainable laughter. No joke was told. Nothing humorous happened in the service. They just started laughing uncontrollably. Holy laughter, they called it. But that wasn't all. In these meetings at the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church and the Toronto Blessing Phenomenon, there was holy barking. Believers would stand up in the service and bark like a dog. And they called it a moving of the Holy Spirit. These were sensational experiences to be sure, but were they experiences of God the Holy Spirit? Is there any biblical precedence for laughing and making noise like certain animals being an evidence of the moving of God's Spirit? No, there isn't. Actually, the opposite is true. Do you know that in Scripture, when God laughs, it's not a good thing? In Scripture, when God laughs, it's not because he's joyful and it's not because he's making a joke. When God laughs, recorded in Scripture, it's that he is scoffing unbelievers. He is deriding their sin. He is mocking their rebellion against him. He is scorning them by laughing. If you doubt that, you could look up Psalm 2-4, Psalm 37-13, Psalm 59, verse 8, or Proverbs 3, 34, to name a few examples. Additionally, there are some examples in the scriptures when someone laughed and it wasn't a sign of doubt, but there's also examples when persons laughed at God or his promises that it was not faith, it was doubt. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God when they were promised a biological baby when Sarah was long past childbearing years. They both laughed at God. Now, of course, our God is not against laughter. But we are saying that his uncontrollable laughter and barking like animals is not an evidence of the reviving movement of the Holy Spirit of God. As for making sounds like animals, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon? When God judged Nebuchadnezzar the king, he gave him a seven-year-long psychotic break with reality, which made Nebuchadnezzar think that he was an animal. So he lived like an animal for seven years. That was a judgment. I can find no biblical examples of barking like a dog or roaring like a lion being associated with the Holy Spirit revival work. Suffice to say, church, there will be all kinds of serious errors in belief and practice if any of us raise our experiences, sensational as they might be, to the par level of Scripture. Our experiences must always be interpreted and informed by Scripture, which is over them. 
if our experiences do not align with Scripture, then our experiences are the problem, not the Scriptures. Suffice to say, there will be all kinds of serious errors when spiritual experience is put on par with Scripture and when spiritual experiences are not shaped and checked by properly interpreted Scripture. Grave sucking. Holy laughter. Barking like dogs. Generally speaking, it goes off the rails when Christians believe they need more of the Holy Spirit. That's not what we need. He needs more of us. We don't need more of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. We need to yield ourselves to his control. He wants more of us. I like to say it. If your Christian life is a car, you don't need more gas in the tank. You need a new driver behind the steering wheel. And so it's not that we need more of the Holy Spirit than we received at the point of our conversion when he baptized us into Christ and into Christ's family. It's that the Spirit of God who is dwelling us needs to have more of us to control. Ephesians 5, 18, again. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, unsavedness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I trust that these moments have been helpful to you or others you love to understand biblically more about the Holy Spirit and his ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what your word does to regulate our understandings about the Holy Spirit and his ways. Thank you that we don't need a second blessing because you see to it at the point of conversion that the new believer is baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this being a work that you do, not a work that we must do. No exceptions. Lord, thank you that we can see that the so-called second blessings of the book of Acts were associated with the gospel moving from one geographic region to a new one. Thank you too, our Father, that victorious Christian living involves us giving the Holy Spirit more of us to control. May it be our standard practice to yield to him, to submit to him, to be controlled by him. We expect to have proof that we are, in fact, spirit-baptized and indwelt. But that proof will be the fruit of the spirit. It'll be a consistent newness of life. And it will be characteristic attitude of gratitude. Father, we want the Holy Spirit to control us. We don't need more gas in our tanks. But we do need a new driver behind our steering wheels. Holy Spirit. Be that driver in me, and Holy Spirit, be that driver in my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.